ora koutou and welcome to Primary Matters, an MPI podcast that delves into the things that matter to our primary industries. I'm Carol Stiles and in this podcast I'll be taking a look at what's going on to keep our food and fibre industries thriving and safe. In this series I'll be catching up with people who have crucial and often surprising jobs to protect animals, crops, our environment and the economy. It's kind of a case of, you do what? Hi, I'm Tim Day, and uh, my job involves crawling around on my hands and knees looking for poo. (laughs) What sort of poo? Well, all sorts of poo, but wallaby poo. Um, So my job involves searching out wallaby, and that involves getting down on your hands and knees, picking up little bits of poo and going, is that a possum poo? Is it a wallaby poo? Is that a possum print? Is that a wallaby print? We're in the game of finding tiny little populations of wallaby that are in the wrong place at the wrong time that we need to control. Tim's based in Rotorua and contracts to regional councils to try to manage wallabies. It's around the lakes that Dharma wallabies have made their home. Another species, the larger Bennett's wallaby, lives in the South Canterbury, North Otago regions. Wallabies were introduced to New Zealand more than a hundred years ago, and it's now estimated there are at least a million of them in the wild in New Zealand, quietly eating everything they can reach in forests and tucking into pastures on farms. But getting back to their droppings. Uh, A wallaby poo looks a bit like a goat poo or a deer poo. It's a round little sphere, maybe... um, 10 millimetres round, looks like about the size of a pea, but it's got a funny little pointy end on it, just a tiny little tip on it. And there'll be a few of them scattered on the ground. They're not big clumpy poos like a sheep poo or something like that. So you're you're searching for these little pellets. You have to get right down there and close to them to figure it out. And do you come home absolutely covered with prickles? (laughs) Yeah, so one of the problems with wallaby poo is it's where wallaby live, and wallaby live in horrible tight places, so... My kids' favourite after-work game is to sit down and see whether Dad's been in the gorse or the blackberry today and pick thorn, spend the rest of the day a bit, bit like monkeys, you know, picking picking things off your back. Well, well, my kids will be looking at the backs of my hands and my shins and my legs and seeing if they can pick out blackberry thorns and bits of gorse and all that kind of thing that invariably go with searching for wallaby poo. There are parts of the Bay of Plenty Tim doesn't need to look for wallabies. He knows they are already there in large numbers. It's the wallabies that have leaked out of those areas and look to be setting up elsewhere that most interest him. So what we actually do is we work from the outside in. So we're basically starting on the outside with our cameras, figuring out how far the wallaby have actually spread and then slowly shutting those populations down from the outside in so that we'll eventually shrink the area they live in right down to that central core. And then you'll get to the point where you've got a contained population um, contained both by the control you're doing but also contained by geographical features like rivers and lakes and that sort of thing which they're not good swimmers, they can't cross. And then you've got a chance of managing them. I think wallaby are far less understood by even the professionals um, compared to, say, a possum. Everyone knows possums, um, as cute as they might look, cause a whole lot of damage to our forests and our birds and our wildlife, and they kind of accept that possum controls are necessary evil in order to protect our, our toanga species and our, and, and our identity as who we are as, as Kiwis. Wallaby actually are very, very similar in terms of the insidious nature they have. They're just much more secretive. They're much shyer. They also look kind of cute and furry, but in reality they're just as damaging as a possum is, 
we just don't understand them as well. So they're in the, they're, they basically mow everything off the forest floor. So every little seedling that tries to pop up two little leaves will get mown flat. So if you go into a piece of forest with a wallaby in it, it's like an earth carpet. There's no understory. Um, they're worse than goats. They just chew, <laughs> chew everything out and you're left with a forest that can't regrow. So you get a cyclone coming, you know, we're in the middle of summer now and we're getting these ex-tropical cyclones coming down. Every time one does, some trees fall over. If there's no seedlings to replace those trees that fall over, what ends up in there? Invasive weeds. Blackberry, gorse, you know, all that sort of thing. So our, our natural spaces get quite heavily modified quite quickly. Are farmers complaining about wallabies getting into their paddocks and eating their grass? Oh, absolutely. If you if you live within the core wallaby area, uh, either in Canterbury with the Bennett's wallaby or in uh, with the Dharma, smaller Dharma wallaby in the Bay of Plenty, if you've got a wallaby population on your farm, they are eating a ton of dry matter. Wallaby are hardly seen because they're secretive, um, but they're 24-7 out there making a mess. There's still some people, I think, who don't know we have wallabies in New Zealand. Do you, do you still get that reaction? Yeah, absolutely. So wallabies are Australian, right? Yeah, people just go, what, you've got wallabies? Very common, and even amongst Rotorua residents, you know, people who live amongst the wallaby, they wouldn't even know they're there necessarily. If you're not a person who goes out and uses the forests at night or regularly drives the roads at night, the chances are you've never seen a wallaby. Have you any idea how many wallabies there might be in the Bay of Plenty? I have no idea. But I know from being someone who recreationally runs at night on trails and things like that, if you ran a kilometre trail, you can see 100 wallaby. You go into the redwoods, there would be thousands of wallaby within the redwood forest. And we know that they live in family groups. A typical family group of wallaby might be 9 to 12 wallaby. But there'll be a family here and right next door, just like an urban situation, there'll be another family living next to them and another one living next to them. And, and their social dynamics are just like humans. You know, the teenagers will be leaving home and knocking on the neighbour's door because they quite like the look of the, the teenage girl who's next door. And, you know, so, that, so they're just like people, right? So they will live as densely as the environment around them will allow. And what that actually means, like many pests, they'll, they'll use that environment to the point that they destroy it. So in 2020, the government earmarked more than $27 million for wallaby control to be spread over five years, with more later to deal with the wallabies in the containment zones. The goal is for New Zealand to be wallaby-free. The reality is no-one really had a focus on wallaby um, for a long time. They were secretive. No-one really understood what was going on, and there were more pressing problems. Possums were perceived to be a bigger problem. We know ship rats destroy, you know, native birds' eggs and things like that in forests. So from a conservation sense, wallaby probably have flown under the radar compared to other pests for a long time. You know, the, the, the way we managed wallaby was very reactive. Someone would hit a wallaby on a road somewhere and go, oh, that wallaby's in the wrong place. And so there'd be a phone call made, and, you know, and the regional council would go, oh, we'd better send someone out to have a look. So we'd go and have a bit of a look and plan a bit of control, but it was very piecemeal and very reactive with a tiny, tiny little budget. And one of the benefits of, you know, COVID and Jobs for Nature funding and, you know, some of the injection of, of money that's gone into conservation has been things like wallaby that were disastrously doing their thing with no human resource to try and manage that now have some significant funding. Suddenly, for example, the work we do with 
game cameras. We've gone from 30 game cameras three or four years ago, we've got 400 now. So we can suddenly see what's going on, you know, and that means we've got the opportunity to do some control, which gives you hope. Some of the funding's also being channelled into research to better understand wallabies and to improve control techniques so they're wallaby-specific. At the moment, night shooting is used in open areas, but otherwise, possum control methods have been tweaked for wallabies. A wallaby-proof fence is also being built to keep wallabies inside the containment zone. The 12.5-kilometre fence runs alongside Rotorua's Whakarewarewa forest which will stop the wallaby from crossing the road and disappearing off yonder, where they become much harder to detect than deal to. So it has to be a certain height, because they could hop over it, or and can they get under things? Yeah, so um, a wallaby fence is pretty simple, really. It uses, you know, like a she- likes of sheep netting. It has a, a mesh skirt that's pinned to the ground, because they will, you know, stoop down and push under gaps under the fence. And it's only the height of a sheep fence, you know, um, 1.1 metres above the ground. They don't actually hop a long way and they and they hop very fast when you see them like a kangaroo running across the landscape but they don't actually bounce you know very very high so they might get you know half a meter off the ground but you don't actually they don't spring vertically you know now this fence can the wallabies get around it at each end yeah well a fence is they're usually imperfect because you've got roads and people's driveways and all of those kind of things so what you're doing with the fence is you're corralling the animals and shaping where they travel so that gives you the option to use whatever control techniques you want, whether it's night shooting with thermal scopes or whether it's trapping or poisoning, whatever you need to do. You concentrate the activity of the animal to a certain place because that's the only place they can get through. So it gives you a lot better chance than if you have a kilometres and kilometres of open terrain that they can just pass through whenever they want. Now, and you were telling me before that in order to control the wallabies, you have to control the possums first. Yeah, so we've got a project just out here which is about 800 hectares of forest. There's um, some wallaby detected and they're outside of that kind of containment zone. From a wallaby control perspective, they're in the death zone. They're in a place where it's unacceptable for us to have wallaby because if they continue to live there, there'd be no geographical barriers from this place to stop them from getting all the way to Tauranga. So with this population, 800 hectares, we identified where the wallaby were and they were living in about 400 hectares. And so we've implemented a bait station control operation using um, possum and wallaby and rodent baits. And we took out between 10 and 12,000 possums before we even killed a wallaby. Um, And the reason for that is that possums are dominant to wallaby. Wallaby, as I said, they're shy and they're secretive and they kind of hide away. And if you put bait out in a bait station, old mate possum is going to turn up and literally beat up every wallaby that turns up to try and eat the bait. The number of possums can be incredible. So in this in this case, we've killed 15 possums per hectare. So in every 100 by 100 metre square, we've killed 15 possums. And there's probably one or two left still. You're also working with iwi? Yeah, so we work, we work on a whole range of conservation projects. We work with a lot of community conservation groups and hapu and iwi groups who are working on their own conservation initiatives and of course wallaby <laughs> overlap and in the Bay of Plenty wallaby become a significant part of some of those control operations in some of those locations and the success of the wallaby program is entirely dependent on the understanding, goodwill and involvement of the landowners. So 
you're just going to mount a, uh, yeah, so a that, camera. So that camera is going to get screwed into this bracket on the tree and then we just mount it up about half a metre off the ground, just above wallaby height. How big are these Dharma wallabies? So a big male, if you looked at it, it would, you know, it was sitting on its back legs just sitting there. The top of its head would be about half a metre off the ground. So twice the size of a possum. But a young juvenile sort of is about the same size as a possum, you know, so they look fairly similar. They hop differently, but, you know, it actually is reasonably easy to mistake a possum for a wallaby, you know. Um, possums have a big bushy tail, wallaby have a long, thin grey tail and obviously have big big back legs like a kangaroo you know so <laughs> and very short stumpy front legs they look like a bit like a tyrannosaurus rex at the front end with their little little stumpy you know front legs and how often do they breed uh so wallaby breed every year and they have um usually just one juvenile and obviously they have a pouch so they're a marsupial and so that that juvenile will be ridiculously big by the time it's Mum finally forces it, stop getting in and out of that pouch. It'll be trying to clamber in when it looks like it's a woman teenager, you know, but like teenagers who won't leave home. <laughs> same same sort of thing, but they, um, you know, they just pretty much there's no predators. I mean, it'd be the odd dog, I guess, you know, that um, is roaming at night or something that would kill, would, would kill them or, you know, hunting dogs or things like that. But really, what's going to eat them? We've got no predators, you know. The surveillance cameras are the size of a couple of packs of cards and a camouflage. And they have a little um, thermal sensor on it that means any, any animal that passes through, it basically leaves a heat trail across the screen and that's what triggers the camera to fire. So birds and moths and mammals and those things will all trigger these cameras. So it's not uncommon for us to go back to a camera after eight weeks and have 40,000 photos. Do you get some quite sharp images? We get stunning images. You know, um, most, most wallaby images are at night because they're nocturnal except when you happen to have put a camera somewhere where they're bedding down, you know, during the day, because they obviously hide away and sleep during the day, and every now and then we hit the jackpot and we have a camera right where they happen to be sleeping and bedding, and then just like humans, they get up in the middle of the night to go for a pee or to, you know, all of that stuff, they get woken up in the night or they have a stretch or whatever, and so we get these cool daytime images. But mostly they're infrared, you know, sort of they look black and white. From a wallaby program perspective, we're only interested in the wallaby. But from a personal perspective, man, I've got some cool shots of all sorts of wildlife doing, you know, falcon feeding off off a possum carcass on the ground, you know, stuff that you just would never get to see in your own eyes. But because these cameras are out there all day, every day, you feel like you're David Attenborough. You get this kind of glimpse into the life and times of these animals. And I mean, I did a PhD in animal behaviour, so the way animals live fascinates me. The cool thing about working on something like the wallaby program is we've got all this camera gear and all this stuff we actually get to learn a whole lot so i've got i've got a guy that works for me rich and he's um he was working in the forestry industry and and loved his job but he's always been into conservation and he'd uh, a few months ago he'd been working for me for just over a year and he said to me when are we starting work because <laughs> you know that's what it feels like every day you just feel like you're going so doing something really cool it doesn't feel like a job it feels like we're extremely fortunate to do what we do. Tim Day from Rotorua. MPI wants people to report sightings or signs of wallabies anywhere in New Zealand. You can do it online. Just type in reportwallabies.nz. I'm Carol Stiles, and you've been listening to You Do What? A series in MPI's Primary Matters podcast. Thanks for listening. Kia pai te ra.